morning, everyone. And if you are here and you're newer to our community, I just want to let you know that after the service, immediately after the service today, uh, we're gathering downstairs in our fellowship hall and there's going to be some food. Yes. And we would love for you to be able to just meet our pastoral staff and our team that's here. So if you've been coming maybe for a few weeks or even for a few months and maybe you haven't really connected with us uh, and uh, would like to connect with us, I just want to invite you to come downstairs immediately after the service uh, and enjoy some time of fellowship uh, with us. We've been going through this entire sort of ministry year since September. We've been going through the story of Jesus. And now post uh, Easter, we're in this next sort of part three. We talked about the birth story of Jesus. We talked about some of the experiences of Jesus while he was ministering here and was on the earth. And now we want to look at the resurrection and beyond. Last week, we started talking. We were talking about Easter. We talked about what Jesus did in dying on the cross on Good Friday and rising again on on Easter Sunday, but maybe there's still some lingering questions within your heart and your mind. And maybe you're newer to Christianity and newer to the story of Jesus, and you might be asking the question, did Jesus really rise again? And it's a legitimate question to ask because you might have that question, but guess what? The disciples during Jesus' days, they had the exact same question. As we read, as Barb read for us in that portion of scripture uh, about the disciples traveling on the road to Emmaus, they were also wondering, along with some of the other disciples, did Jesus really rise again? It was something that was sort of caught them by surprise. Even though Jesus predicted his death and resurrection, this was something that was a little bit surprising for them to be able to say, is Jesus really alive? They had hoped that he was the Messiah, but they had hoped that he would come and kick out Rome and kick out all of the rulers and establish the kingdom of Israel to what it was in its former glory. Um, in the book of Luke, it says, we had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This is what the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, this is what they were feeling. This is what they desired. This was what our hope was, but actually it didn't happen because now Jesus was crucified and he was killed. And so their hopes and their desires were, were gone. They were shattered in many ways. But then they had this news that came from the women and came from some of the other disciples. Jesus is alive. And some believed and some doubted. But it was something completely radical for them. It was something completely different from what they had ever experienced. They weren't even thinking that Jesus would actually rise again from the dead. But actually, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the foundation of the Christian faith. It's the foundation of our belief. If Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, then our faith is in vain. All of what we do is in vain. Paul says this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless. I'm standing here, useless, right? And your faith is useless. You all sitting here, useless. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. And so what we saw here in baptism, in the, in the desire of these, uh, these sisters to take that step of faith and take baptism as a declaration of what Jesus has done in washing away their sins and cleansing them, useless. If Jesus didn't rise again from the dead. But if he did, then all of this has meaning for us. But if not, then all of these things are done in vain. So that's what we want to look at this morning, because 
This is the foundation of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus. What are some of the ways in which Jesus actually, that we can understand that Jesus rose again from the dead? A couple of verses down in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, and if our hope in Christ is only for this life, meaning that there's no hope for resurrection, there's no hope for after death, then we are to be pitied more than anyone in the world. See, because our hope extends beyond the grave. Our hope goes beyond this life. So I want to look at a few different evidences of the resurrection of Jesus. And you decide for yourself, okay? You decide, and, and as you look at the evidence, as you see what has happened, you can con- consider and you think, did Jesus really rise again from the dead? And if he did, there are grand implications for myself and for you. We can't just accept and say, okay, yes, Jesus died again, died and rose again from the dead and continue to live our life the way that we want to. If it's true that Jesus rose again from the dead, then there are huge, huge implications for our life and how we live our life, not only now, but for eternity to come as well. Number one, the doubts of the disciples. Now, you're probably thinking about that, and you've probably seen the doubts of the disciples. Daniel, I think that's probably under the con column and not under the pro column. Right? That should be used as, as not as evidence that Jesus rose again, but probably as evidence that he didn't rise again because of all the doubts. Well, actually, the doubts of the disciples, the very fact that we can read in Scripture and we can read in other places about the doubts of the disciples that Jesus actually rose again, shows us that this wasn't a fabricated story. If someone wanted to come later on and create a narrative and create a story that Jesus died and that he rose again then they would have created the story without any doubts. They would have created the story without, with the disciples responding right away in faith and saying, yes, we knew this was going to happen. Glory to God, this finally happened, and Jesus is alive, and all of these things. But instead, the scriptures actually reveal and show to us some doubt and some worry in what happened. They were genuinely surprised that Jesus rose again from the dead. It was unexpected from them. And so the story that we read in the Gospels is actually just the story of truth. They told the story the way that it happened. They didn't try to create a narrative. They didn't try to create something that wasn't there. They just said what happened. Luke 24 and verse 22, it says, Then some of the women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. And they were unsure. They were doubting. This report came. This was something that they had not expected to hear. In John 20, it talks about Jesus' interaction with Thomas, and we'll study this a little bit later on in this part of the series. They told him, meaning the disciples were telling Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas replied, Thomas is affectionately known as Doubting Thomas, okay? I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wounds in his side. This was Thomas who followed Jesus for three and a half years and was his disciple and saw the miracle and saw the signs and saw everything that happened, yet Thomas was doubting. If they wanted to fabricate a story and create a narrative to explain why Jesus actually rose again from the dead, well, guess what? Leave Thomas' story out. He's not helping the case here, right? Thomas, you're not a good example of a follower here. You should just believe and that's it. But instead, this story is talked about. The Gospels were written in all its authenticity, vulnerability, failures, and faults. It was all exposed. It was all talked about. They told the story just the way that it was. And that in itself is an evidence that this thing wasn't fabricated or just made up. Number two, 
the empty tomb. All, the, all that the people had to do was produce the rotting body of Jesus. And that would have been the end of the story. Come to the tomb, let me show you the tomb, and let me, and, and let me see the body of Jesus there. That's all that they needed to do, and the whole narrative would have stopped. The whole, uh, the whole experience would have stopped. The whole movement would have stopped. But they were, not, they were unable to do that. The earliest narratives that we see uh, written there, uh, 1 Corinthians is probably about 15 to 20 years post-resurrection of Jesus. And in, in, that, uh, in that letter that Paul is writing about, he is talking about um, the, the resurrection of Jesus and the empty tomb. Here's another thing in, the sto- in this narrative of, of the empty tomb, is that after Jesus dies, it's the, the word of God specifically mentions that Jesus is buried in the tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He was part of the high council. Some people think he was part of the Sanhedrin. Uh, we don't know 100% for sure, but he was part of a high Jewish council. And the very fact that his name was written there shows to people that they could go and find that place. They can go and find that tomb. If they really wanted to find out where is Jesus, if they really wanted to find out or disprove the, the, the story of Jesus, they could just go to Joseph's tomb. And again, 1 Corinthians written about 15 to 20 years after, um, after the resurrection of Jesus. And even before that, when the, when the story is going out and when people are spreading the good news, they know where Jesus was buried. But, the st- but they couldn't produce the body of Jesus because he had risen again from the dead. In Matthew chapter 28, it says, a meeting with the elders was called and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. This is the religious people talking about the soldiers who were guarding the tomb of Jesus. They told the soldiers, you must say Jesus' disciples came during the night while you were, we were sleeping and they stole his body. If the governor hears about it, we will stand up for you so you won't get in trouble. See, there was a narrative that they were trying to produce, that they were trying to say uh, in order to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. There are other uh, early Jewish writings that also acknowledge an empty tomb. And they try to explain it actually in different ways of why the tomb was, uh, was empty and that Jesus didn't actually rise again from the dead. But there is an acknowledgement of an empty tomb. They try to acknowledge it with this story as well, that they had stolen the body away because they were trying to respond to the fact that the tomb was actually empty. They had to make up a story, even in early Jewish writings at the time, they had to make up a story that fits with the fact that the tomb was empty. The Jews were against the Christians at the time. And so the the testimony of the empty tomb was something that was important for them to speak up against. The the, the tomb also didn't become a shrine. Back in those days, if there was a a religious figure like Jesus who caused great uh, change and, and people honored him, that tomb more than likely probably would have become a shrine where people would have gone and worship, where people would have gone uh, back to be able to say, oh, this was such a, uh, an important man, an important figure and would have honored him uh, after his death. But the tomb didn't become a shrine. Why didn't it become a shrine? Because there was no body there for it to become a shrine. William Lane, Craig's, uh, William Lane Craig, who is a, 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 a Christian theologian and has studied this in, 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 in a lot of depth, uh, highly recommend if you'd like to read any of his books. Uh, there is simply no plausible natural explanation today to account for Jesus' tomb being empty. If we deny the resurrection of Jesus, we are left with an inexplicable mystery. Why was the tomb empty? 
Here's, here, here's another thing, the decree by Caesar. This is something interesting that I, that, that I read recently, and it was something that has been studied uh, in recent years as well, is that um, Caesar, now unsure of who actually was, it could have been Tiberius Caesar or Claudius Caesar, he sent out a decree. There was actually uh, some archaeology that was found. There was an inscription that was found in Nazareth, right, uh, to talk about not allowing tombs or sepulchers to be destroyed or raided. Here's what it said, the decree that was found. This is just a portion of it, okay? It is my pleasure that sepulchers and tombs, this is Caesar giving his decree, which have been erected as solemn memorials of ancestors or children or relatives shall remain undisturbed in perpetuity. Much rather, one must pay respect to those who are buried. Let no one disturb them on any account. Otherwise, it is my will that capital sentence, big punishment here, be passed upon such person for the crime of tomb spoilation. Now, this, this inscription was found in Nazareth in Galilee, and it was something that was very odd and weird. And what, what historians uh, think could have possibly happened, uh, again, it was dated to the early first century, so it could have been Tiberius Caesar, or it could have been uh, uh, Caesar Claudius, uh, more than likely, it was probably Caesar Claudius because after 44 AD, um, there was imperial rule in the land of Galilee. Before that, it was under Herod and his uh, descendants, but 44 AD moved over to imperial rule over Galilee, and so more than likely, it was probably Claudius Caesar. Christianity was spreading at the time, and he probably heard the same rumor that we just read about a couple of verses ago, that somebody had stolen away the body of Jesus, and he didn't want the same thing to take place again, where this whole religious movement is starting and ruining his empire, and people are just are, are growing and growing and causing him great frustration. And so historians think that a, a possibility that he, this, this decree was sent out was so that the same thing wouldn't happen again. Again, a little bit of other just outside of the Bible evidence to show that there was an empty tomb, and there is proof, there is some evidence there about the resurrection of Jesus. Number four, the eyewitness accounts of the disciples. This is something that's really significant. Now, let me also say that there's enough evidence, and it's not for this message, but there's enough evidence to show the historicity of Jesus. There's enough evidence outside of the Bible in early writings to prove that there was a man named Jesus, that he lived and that he died. The debate is whether he rose again. But there's enough evidence even from non-Christians, from, from historical writers outside of, of, uh, of Christian writers to prove the existence of Jesus and the fact that he lived and he taught and he died. But the eyewitness reports of the disciples, I think, are very significant. The eyewitness reports of Mary, of Peter, of Thomas, of 500 disciples at one time, of James, who was the brother of Jesus. James, who was a skeptic during Jesus' lifetime. We don't see him following. We don't see him part of that group. But afterwards, acknowledging the lordship of Jesus Christ, his own older brother. In John 20 and verse 18 about Mary Magdalene, her, her witness report is this. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. In Luke 24, the, on the road to Emmaus, the, the testimony of the disciples there, as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment he disappeared. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? 
Learned scholars such as the Apostle Paul, who at the time was called Saul, he was a learned scholar, and him having an encounter with Jesus and radically changing from persecuting the Christian faith to being a promoter of the Christian faith. So you can ask the question, were they all lying? Or were they all hallucinating? And those are valid questions to ask. Well, let's take lying, for example. If you think that maybe some of these people, they were just all lying and telling a story, fabricating a story, well, that would be very difficult to believe because most of these people paid with their life. Most of these people, when it came, push came to shove, and they had to decide whether they would stay faithful to Jesus and stay faithful to the story that they were telling that Jesus died and rose again, they were willing to pay with their life and die. How about for you? Sometimes for the truth, we're not willing to die. Would you die for a lie? If you were just telling a lie and the, and the point came when they're ready to, to kill you or crucify you, you'd probably say, okay, forget it. I was actually making it all up, and it's not true. But they didn't. They stood by their story. How about hallucinating? Could they have just hallucinated this and just seen this? Well, usually uh, there, there's a whole other study of a person that went and studied all the different cases of a, of, uh, of a hallucinating. If you want to know about that, I can give you a, a reference to read up about it. But normally hallucinating is not going to happen with groups of people. It might happen individually. It might happen for, for one people, one person. But with groups of people, no. But also some of the things that, that they did with Jesus. They were able to touch Jesus. They were able to eat with Jesus. Those aren't really halluc hallucinations. And at one point, as we read, uh, even 500 people saw Jesus at one time. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. So here Paul is just putting it out there. And he's saying about 500 people, he's writing to the Corinthians and saying about 500 people saw Jesus. Hey, still, most of them are still alive. You can go and talk to them. If they wanted to disprove it, all they needed to do was, was say, hey, produce the body of Jesus. But instead, they were able to go to some of these 500 people. Some of them had passed, but by the, again, 1 Corinthians, about 15 or 20 years post-resurrection. So a number of those people were still alive. They were able to get firsthand reports of people, eyewitnesses, that had seen Jesus. Bart Ehrman, who wrote the book, uh, How Jesus Became God, he's a, a New Testament scholar and theologian who is one of the most respected New Testament scholars. He's actually an atheist. I think he's probably an agnostic by now. Um, but he doesn't believe that Jesus actually rose again from the dead, although he's done great studies and written uh, lots of books about this. But he says this, there can be no doubt historically that some of Jesus' followers came to believe he was raised from the dead, no doubt whatsoever. Now, it's up to us to decide whether we want to believe those eyewitness reports. Did Jesus actually rise again from the dead? There's enough eyewitness reports to show that. Number five, there was an early creedal affirmation of the resurrection. We were just reading there in 1 Corinthians, and as, and as I said, about 15 or 20 years post-resurrection, we can probably date 1 Corinthians, one of the early letters that Paul actually uh, wrote. But here Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, quotes what's known as a, a, probably an early creed uh, in verses 3 to 5. This is what it says. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. 
Historians and scholars really think that Paul probably received this portion, which we're going to read in a moment, probably received this portion very early on after his conversion, probably the time when he went to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and, some of, uh, and uh, James. He didn't meet with a lot of people at that time. About 15 years later, he came back to Jerusalem and met with more of the disciples. But early on when he came to meet with Peter, this was probably what was passed on to him, which he was also trying to pass on to others. It was a creed. It was something that was said. It was a belief system that they were that they were saying about what actually happened okay and it says here um, Christ died for our sins just as the scripture said he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day just as the scripture said origins of this creed um, scholars can probably can, can say date back to probably 30 to 35 AD very soon after the resurrection I'll read you a couple of quotes. Gerd Ludman, who's also an atheist but a New Testament scholar, he says this, the elements of the tradition are to be dated to the first two years after the crucifixion of Jesus, not later than three years. The formation of the appearance, uh, of, the appearance of the traditions mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8, falls into the time frame between 30 and 33 uh, A.D., so there was some creedal affirmation for this. Robert Funk, again, a non-Christian scholar, says this, the conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead had already taken root by the time Paul was converted about 33 AD. On the assumption that Jesus died about 30 AD, the time for development was thus two to three years at the most. N.T. Wright, who is a Christian theologian, he says this, this is the kind of foundation story with which a community is not at liberty to tamper. It's probably formulated within the first two or three years after Easter itself, since it was already in formulaic form when Paul received it. And so this, this early creedal format that's found there in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5, Paul is giving it again to the Corinthian church, and he's explaining that this is something, this is something that Paul received early on. This was something that was rooted in, in part of what the early church was saying and doing and confessing to acknowledge the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. James Dunn, who is a Christian theologian, he says, this tradition, we can be entirely confident, was formulated as tradition within months of Jesus' death. So he, he takes it a little bit earlier and and says probably within months of Jesus's death the early church was starting to say this creed and this affirmation number six they preach the resurrection in Jerusalem where Jesus died look if you wanted to start a story about Jesus dying and rising again don't do it in the city that you claim he died in because there's enough people there that would have seen it and so if you wanted to fabricate a story, and if you wanted to start telling something, you start in a different city, you start in a different country, you start in a different place. The very fact that they started in Jerusalem, and Jesus even gave them a commandment, you will preach the gospel in Jerusalem, in Judea, and then to the other parts of the world. But they started in Jerusalem. And the very fact that they started in Jerusalem is, I think, uh, part of it is evidence and proof to show that this wasn't a fabricated story, but it was actually something that happened, right? Let me give you an example. You might not like this example. You know, take the Toronto Maple Leafs. Playoffs coming up, right? If I were to say something to the effect, you know, the Leafs, they didn't lose to Boston a few years ago. That game seven, you remember that game seven? That game seven, they actually won. What would you say? I'm living in Toronto. Most, some of you who follow sports, you'd probably say, Daniel, that's wrong. That didn't happen. They lost that game seven. What if I were to say, you know, last year, the Toronto Maple Leafs, they beat the Tampa Bay Lightning. What would you tell me? 
Uh, Daniel, no, that's wrong. We're living, uh, we live through this, Daniel. We live through the heartbreak. We don't want to live through it again this week either. But we lived through the heartbreak, right? You don't start telling the story in the city that it happened, but that's what they did because they were just telling the story at what took place. Number seven, the women were the first to discover and speak about the resurrection. The testimony of women in the first century wasn't considered valid and didn't have weight. And so if you're going to write a story, if you're going to tell us, if you're going to fabricate a story, if you're going to say something of this is what happened, don't use women in that because they, their testimony and their weight, uh, their, their testimony didn't hold weight with other people. In Luke 24, it says, so they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. If you're writing a story, you don't put this in. But the very fact that this part, that the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus were women, speaks to us that they told the story just of how it happened. Because if you wanted to write the story, and if you wanted to tell the story in another way to make people believe, well, guess what? This is not the way you write the story. Had they made up the story, they would have probably included a different narrative, a different way. The disciples, the apostles were there. They went, and they saw Jesus, and they all believed right away, and they knew, yes, he predicted this, and now it happened, and look at the wonderful things that were going on. The story would have been written in a much different way. If you read some of the, uh, uh, some of the gospels, quote-unquote gospels, that were written maybe even hundreds of years after the resurrection of Jesus that are not considered holy or canonical or that are not considered part of the, the written word of God, a lot of them have made up and fabricated stories. And if you want to hear how a fabricated story is made up, read some of those things and you'll see. You can really acknowledge that that was fabricated because everything works out exactly the right way. Not the way the Gospels were written. They told the facts just the way that it was. William Lane Craig says this, the fact that despised women whose testimony was deemed worthless were the chief witnesses to the fact of the empty tomb can only be plausibly explained if, like it or not, they actually were the discoverers of the empty tomb. They told the story the way it was. Number eight, the birth and growth of the church can only be explained because of the resurrection of Jesus. There was a whole new world view that was, that was started and that was propagated, that was preached, that was taught, something that they had never heard before, something that they had never thought about before. It was just, it just sprung up a whole new worldview because Jesus rose again from the dead. The explosion of growth in the early church that happened in the very place that Jesus died and rose again, the explosion of the church that happened just weeks after the resurrection of Jesus can only be explained because of the resurrection of Jesus. The great hostility that the church faced, the opposition that the church faced, the opposition that the apostles and leaders faced, and it still grew and it still gained traction and people saw, people believe what happened because they told the story the way it happened and people believed and knew that Jesus rose again from the dead. Peter's life was completely changed, completely transformed. Look at this. Worship went from Saturday to Sunday. That was crazy for the Jews. They wanted to respect the Sabbath. They wanted to obey the Sabbath. You can read the stories in the gospel of the religious leaders that were so upset at Jesus when he healed on the Sabbath. 
Not only just the Sabbath, but the very fact that later on you start talking about no more circumcision. You start talking about, okay, well, these animals are no longer defiled, or these animals you can eat now, and these animals you can do this and that with. There was so much change that happened, and and stout religious leaders that lived, the Jewish people that lived by these things for years, this was their theology, this was their belief, this was their faith system for decades, for generations, for even a couple of thousand years now completely revolutionized completely changed because one person died and rose again it was a whole new worldview that transformed the world even till today how did that happen the birth and growth of the church can only be explained with the fact that jesus rose again from the dead in acts it says this god raised jesus from the dead And we are all witnesses of this. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Before this, the Jewish people had no conception, no worldview, and no idea about individual resurrection. That was not part of their belief system. And then this happens, and it completely revolutionizes everything. Timothy Keller says it this way in in the book, The Reason for God. After the death of Jesus, the entire Christian community suddenly suddenly adopted a set of beliefs that were brand new and until that point had been unthinkable. The first Christians had a resurrection-centered view of reality. When resurrection became the primary thing, remember we talked about it, if Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, if resurrection is not true, our faith is in vain. When it became the primary thing, the, 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 the cornerstone, the, the principal thing upon which faith was built, it created a whole new faith system, a whole new worldview, a whole new outlook that they embraced, that they accepted, that they lived by, that they paid the price for with their own lives. He says this in in, in Reason for God as well. Every effort to account for the birth of the church apart from Jesus' resurrection flies in the face of what we know about first century history and culture. You can't explain the birth of the church. You can't explain the growth of the church. You can't explain the adaptation of a world, a new worldview, an adaptation of new uh, belief system and all of these things. You can't explain any of it without an acknowledgement of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead as the principal thing that happened that changed things around. N.T. Wright in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, says this, the early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or sightings of the risen Jesus. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. It's not something that you can just expect. It's not something that they were looking for. So to make this up and write about it, they couldn't do it. No kind of conversion experience would have invented it. No matter how guilty or how forgiven they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures, to suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and to enter into a fantasy world of our own. What happened can only be explained because Jesus rose again from the dead. Number nine, and I won't go into a lot of detail on this, but the early Christian writers spoke of the resurrection of Jesus. There were a number of Christian writers early on as the stories were being told and as the faith was being built and as as people started to accept Christ, 
Clement was a first century leader uh, in Rome, and he wrote a, a letter to the church in Corinth, probably between AD 70 to 96. And in that, he speaks of the teachings of Jesus. He acknowledges Jesus' death. He acknowledges as well Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Ignatius of Antioch, another early church leader, wrote a letter to the church in Smyrna, probably around AD 110. So again, you're talking about one generation away, where he talks about how Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He talks about how he suffered, and he talks about how he appeared and how he rose again. Polycarp, maybe a name that you might have heard before because he was a famous martyr, probably also one of the disciples of, uh, of John. We don't know for sure, but uh, he was taught. We understand that he was taught, taught directly by some of the original apostles. And he talked about, he affirmed uh, that Jesus lived and died. Another church leader, Papias, uh, lived between probably, uh, uh, he, or he wrote between 95 AD and about 110 AD, and he wrote that he learned the teachings of Jesus directly from those that had heard Jesus in person. The Didache, probably around 50 AD to 70 AD, written as well, it also talks about some of the beliefs and early teachings of the, of the church. Friends, there's enough in, in early church writing outside of the Bible to talk about Jesus' resurrection as well. This is not a made-up story. This is not something that somebody just conceived in the back room and tried to propagate it, and all of a sudden it became a world religion. No. There's lots of evidence to show what Jesus did. And lastly... Number 10, Jesus, Jesus predicted that he would die and rise again. Anyone here want to try that? <laughs> Stand up now, predict your death, and say you're going to rise again. Probably not going to do that, right? But the very fact that Jesus did it, and he rose again, proof and evidence of the resurrection the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of the enemies. He'll be killed, but three days later he will rise from the dead. They didn't understand what he was saying, however, and they were afraid to ask him what he meant. Friends, what are the implications for you and me? If Jesus really did die, and if he really did rise again, then guess what? The lukewarm life that we live right now the indifference that we feel to the things of Jesus and the way of Jesus, that's not going to serve us well. If Jesus really did die and rise again, then he's not a liar and he's not a lunatic, but he's the Lord. And how will you and I respond to that? How will you and I take the claims of Jesus for what it is? and apply that to our lives and live this Christian life. Worship team, please come. On the, on the road to Emmaus, these two disciples, they're walking with Jesus, and Jesus comes and he sits down with them when they get to their destination, and he breaks bread and their eyes are open. In many ways, what Jesus does here with these disciples on the road to Emmaus is a reversal of what happened in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, the Lord came and talked with two people, Adam and Eve. He fellowshiped with them. He walked with them in the cool of the day, the Word of God says. He had experiences with them. But they decided to do something in disobedience to the Lord. They took a fruit and they ate it. And as they did that, their eyes also were opened. And they understood the difference between good and evil. They understood the shame of their actions. They understood the shame of sin. 
And, 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 and centuries later, when Jesus comes and he walks on the road to Emmaus, and he comes to that destination, and he's speaking to them, and he's talking to them all about what was prophesied in the Old Testament. And he takes bread, and he breaks it, and he shares it with them. And their eyes are open to see Jesus. In many ways, completely different from what happened to Adam and Eve. They see the beauty of Jesus. They see the lordship of Jesus. They see Jesus as the bread of life. The true bread that came down from heaven. Friends, can we see that? Can we know that? The true bread that came down from heaven. The death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus can transform our lives like it did the early church. You look at the evidence and you tell me the reason of why you believe what you believe. Let's stand together.